Um, our passage is from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. My little children, I am not writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Mm. So much, Jennifer. This needs to be off. Thank you. So I have a question for you this morning. You know what it's like when you pray and you say something like this. God, it's me again, and it's that thing again. You know what I'm talking about? When we go before God and it's like it's clockwork, we're saying the very thing we just said the other day or last week, and you feel this great sense of shame and sense of dread. And let me ask you a question. In those moments, what is going on in the courts of heaven? Like, if we could zoom out and get a heavenly vision of what's going on in the courts of heaven before the Father and the Son and the Spirit, what is going on? The way you answer that question, the vision you have in your head when you sin, what happens in the courts of heaven is of utmost importance to all of us in so many ways. See, because what happens for many of us in our mind is something like this. And, and I, I've been around a lot of Christians, and I hear this come out of people, whether it's explicitly or implicitly, it's kind of like this. God the Father is raging against us. He's extremely angry, and he's about to smite us like Zeus. And then Jesus, the gentle, meek, mild, loving son, jumps in front and says, whoa, 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 Father, calm down. I know Sam blew it again. But remember, we love him, right? We love him. He's good. And the father's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, son. I just got a little ahead of myself. I, whoo, all right. I was about to kill Sam, you know, because he deserves it. But thanks, Jesus. And although that can be a little amusing, some of you aren't smiling because you're like, yeah, that's exactly what I functionally believe God is like when I sin. He's really mad, and Jesus is the nice one who's calming down his angry father. As we continue our series in the letters of John, what we're going to see this morning is that the way you view the God, God's heart towards you and the way you see what Jesus does on behalf of you when you sin is going to deeply affect everything in your life, how you relate with God, actually how you relate with others too. And what we're going to see this morning is that this passage, for some of us, is going to be liberating, and I can't wait for you to feel that liberation. Some of us, it's going to be terrifying. And some of us, it's going to just be so encouraging and so happifying. We're going to see God more clearly, and we're going to see what happens in response to our sin. Because that's really the question that is at hand this morning is, how does God respond when we sin, when we blow it? If you don't have your Bibles yet to 1 John 2, please open it. 1 John chapter 2, just in verse 1 and 2 today. And let me remind us where we've been, this series we've been in 1 John. 
Last week, we learned that God is light, and in him is no darkness, not at all. And because God is light, and God's children are children of the light, it radically shapes the way they live. They no longer walk in darkness as their pattern, but they're walking in the light. And yet, there were some people in the church who were claiming that they could walk in the light, and yet simultaneously, their whole life was walking in darkness, It's as nonsensical as if I just told you right now, man, this room is pitch dark. And it's also blindingly light, right? That that is nonsense. Darkness and light cannot coexist. They're mutually exclusive. And so it is with the children of God. We cannot be walking in darkness and light simultaneously. And yet, John knows that we're going to screw up because we all do. And there's a great provision in 1 John 1, 9 is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Last week, we learned this term expiation. It's the removal of our guilt and shame. And this week, we're going to see another facet of what God does for us on the cross. We're going to see a little courtroom glimpse of heaven and what Christ has done for us and what he's still doing for us that gives us access to be able to ask for forgiveness in 1 John 1, 9. Okay, let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. So on the screen, if you don't have a Bible, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I want to start off by focusing on the way John addresses these people. He calls them little children. At this point, John is an old man. Remember, he was likely the youngest apostle. So he started off with Jesus as a really, maybe a teenager. And now he's been walking with God in the light for decades. He's an old man. He has a big heart for his people, a fatherly heart. He's a spiritual father for many children. And he's addressing them like a little children. Do you hear the tenderness in his language? He doesn't start off by saying, you little snots, you little kids, you idiots, but little children. Not in a derogatory way, but a tender way. John writes as a spiritual father who has a heart bursting full of love and affection for his children. Because he's been with the father for decades. And as you walk with the father, you start getting the father's heart. And he wants the world for his kids. So John says, I'm writing these things. So when you say, hear these words, these things, we're talking about everything that he has been saying up to that point and everything that's going to come. He's writing them. Why? That you will not. He doesn't promise that they will not sin. Let's just be clear what John is not saying. He's not saying, I'm writing these things because you will never sin or you cannot sin or just as bad. You must sin. But he's writing this as a tender old father who wants to keep his kids from sin. Now, if you've been around church, it's easy to use words like sin and not actually think about what does the word sin mean? Now, some people say missing the mark and other different things or disobeying God's commands. Um, I've, I've never found a satisfactory definition of sin because if you read through the whole Bible, it's so deeply robust and it gets at so many angles that it's hard to just say sin is this but let me give you a definition from the new city catechism it's up here would you read this out loud with me 
This, this kind of, some, some traditions do this where they like repeat after uh, um, a, a catechism, and I think this could be helpful for our church sometimes. Would you read this with me? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. It's pretty good. It gets more at sin than just, I made a boo-boo or a mistake. I didn't live my best life. But remember, I shared last sermon, and I'm going to say it several times this morning, is that 1 John is a potentially dangerous book because if you are like most modern-day readers or listeners, you are not careful and you take things out of context. Anybody use social media lately, right? And what 1 John is potentially dangerous is if you just read one verse and just roll with it. Because if you read last week's passage and you sat down with us, you can be like, well, you know, Sam, what's the use, John? We're all going to sin. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry, and thank you, Jesus, for the cross. I got my fire insurance. We're good. I'll just do what I want. But as a father, John lovingly wants to help them not sin. Why? Because a father wants the best for his kids. He wants the world. Like, I, I can't explain to you how I feel towards my children. Like, I look at my children, and when they sin, when they blow it, when they screw up, my heart is broken for them. And when they do good, I just, like, literally want to buy them all the Pokemon cards they could ever want. Like, seriously. They just did one small thing this last week, and I was just like, oh, I just want to just buy you things. Because my heart is just bursting with love for them, and that's John's heart for us. Why? Because sin kills Sin is the worst thing that can happen to God's people. It hurts our relation with God, our relationship with self, with creation, and it plunges us into darkness. And where darkness is not where we belong anymore. John wants life for them because he loves them so deeply. And, and let me just say this. I'm not an old man. I'm, I'm younger than some of you. I definitely look younger than many of you. But I, I could say, because I've been walking with the Father, I feel the Father's love for many of you. Many of you, I do. My heart just bursts with affection for you. I ache for you, church. And that's not because I have such love in me. You're such a man full of love. No, it's the Father's love that has rubbed off on me and it pours out towards you. That's that, my heart for you. And, and so I'm preaching this morning so that you may not sin. I want to keep you from sin. I want to help you on your journey, your pilgrimage, until we reach heaven, until Jesus comes back or we die. So my heart bursts for you this morning, church. I love you deeply, and that's why I preach. That's why I do what I do. But the reality is we will all sin. John knows that. So our passage shows us what is happening in heaven when we do sin? Because we will. So let's look at the second part of chapter 2, verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. What is this word advocate? It's a word that we use a lot in our culture. What I'm going to do is start off by going pretty deep with two quotes, and then I'm going to try to simplify it. And I think at the end of it, it will be clearer for all of us, God willing. 
Tim Keller puts it pretty helpfully this way. An advocate is someone who has an official relationship with you. So whatever the advocate achieves, you achieve. And whatever the advocate loses, you lose. It means you've entered into a relationship with this person, so this person represents you. So that what the person does is transferred to you. 100 years ago, another pastor, Charles Hodge, says it like this. The relationship of Christ to his people is that of a legal advocate to a client. The lawyer stands in the client's place. It is, while it lasts, the most intimate of relationships. You may not even have to appear in court. You are not heard. You are not even regarded. You are lost in your advocate who, for the time being, is your representative. The advocate, not you, is seen. The advocate, not you, is heard. The advocate, not you, is regarded. See, here's the beauty of advocacy. Jesus is not just a lawyer. A lot of times you'll hear, what's an advocate? It's like a lawyer. Well, kind of like a lawyer and kind of not. How is Jesus not like a lawyer? Well, a lawyer is typically a hired hand. Or if you can't afford a lawyer, the, the courts give you one from the county. The lawyer is not like, man, I just love you and I want to defend you. L- lawyer is like, I'm getting paid. I have to do this. See, Jesus is not some hired hand who is begrudgingly advocating for you. In fact, he pays for himself to advocate for you with his own blood. What kind of lawyer is that? I'm actually paying to be your advocate. Jesus is our advocate representing us before the Father. He is not just a lawyer. He's not just paying his own way. He's your elder brother. He's family. But why? Why is Jesus advocating for us? Why do we need him? Well, like I said in the introduction, a lot of times we have this picture that we need Jesus as an advocate because the father is so dang angry all the time. I can't believe Sam would do that thing again. After all the times I've given him mercy, really, Sam? Really? And then Jesus stands up, Father, calm down one more time. Please give Sam another chance. Well, I'll work with him. Holy Spirit, come on, let's get on this. Sam is not growing fast enough. And the father calms down, you're right. Thanks for that reminder, son. I won't destroy Sam this time, right? And many of us believe God is like that. And possibly a lot of that is to do with our own earthly fathers who are so furiously angry and out of control so often that we think that God is, must be like that because I had an earthly father, and God's a father, and so I guess God is like my earthly father? We functionally can believe that. And if that's you, I have really good news for you. Really good news for you. Our passage says that Jesus is with the father. With the father. The father and the son are never at odds. They always agree. They have the same heart. The Trinity, remember, they're one. They're working together. The father's not like, I want to do one thing. Jesus is like, no, 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 not another thing. No, they're one in the same. They're working together. So how is the right way to view this courtroom scene when we sin? Well, to answer that, we have to ask yourself, who is the accuser? Or who is the prosecutor in this courtroom? It's not the father. It's not the father condemning us and Jesus standing in the way, advocating for us. No, no, no. 
the prosecutor or the, the accuser is actually not mentioned in this text. See, there is a prosecutor who also knows about her, our sin pretty well and is eager to present a full case against us. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. He wants to shove our sin in our face, smear our face into our shame. Who is this accuser, this prosecutor? Well, look at Revelation 12, verse 10 with me. Would you read this with me? And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Who is this? It's the serpent, that ancient creature who stands before God and accuses us day and night. Remember, if you've read the book of Job, Satan has access to heaven right now. Remember, Satan's not in hell. Like, he's not like in hell and he's like ruling with a pitchfork and then one day he can't be there anymore and he's gonna be, now we suffer and right now he's immune to fire, like, you know, the way Hollywood makes it. Satan is roaming in to and fro throughout the earth and one of the places he often goes is he goes before the courts of heaven and he presents cases against you. Night and day accusing you and me against the Father. He throws our face our sin into our face, our failures, our shame. He wants judgment for us. And you know what? He's usually right about us. He does know about our sin. He is watching us with his demons. And we've screwed up actually even more than he knows because he's not omniscient. And top it off, we join him, don't we? Many of us here are our worst critiques, critics. We're always shaming ourselves, always condemning ourselves. You should have known better, Sam. Come on. How could you? What would people Think if they knew. Or perhaps it's not your own voice. Maybe it's the voice of a loved one in the past that always echoes condemnation. A teacher, a parent, they're constantly in the background on your shoulder condemning you. How dare you? Reminding you of how far you have fallen. On and on, the voice of the accuser and our own inner voice and critics can eerily be similar. But this is what is going on in heaven. Imagine this with me. Imagine this. If you can, would you even go with me for a second and close your eyes? Just imagine this. If you can, please close your eyes. Satan walks up before the Father with the long scroll of all that we've done wrong accusing us of all our sin. And he says, guilty, they're guilty. God, condemn them, be just. If you are a God of justice and all these, you must condemn them. And then Jesus stands up as our defense attorney, our advocate, and says, he or she is forgiven. I've already paid the price for that. And then Satan retorts and says, objection, your honor. They sin, they deserve punishment. And then God the Father says, overruled. This is my son. Justice has been paid. Amen? Jesus, the advocate, silences the accuser. I love how John Bunyan puts it. He wrote a whole book on just this. It's on the screen. Satan had the first word, but Christ the last. As the hymn says, 
when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, of word I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. That's what our advocate does. Church, how, how would we live as forgiven children of God if we truly believed we have had an advocate like this in heaven? See, the problem is, as fallen creatures, even though we're being renewed by God and his spirits, we are naturally prone to self-advocacy. What do I mean by that? Well, if any of you have children or been around children, you don't need to teach them a master course on how to defend themselves or how to excuse themselves or how to blame shift their sister or brother for why they did what they did. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's easy. It's natural. It's a natural instinct to explain why it's someone else's fault. And we minimize our sin, minimize and excuse ourselves. We self-advocate. And some of you, you grew up in families where you, you were so regularly ganged up upon and shamed that you have taught yourself how to survival, how to self-advocate. And it's exhausting. But what if we actually believe this passage, believe that Jesus is an advocate for you? Well, you could lay down the heavy burden of being your own advocate, your own PR manager. You can let Jesus, a far better advocate, advocate for you. You would be free from having to excuse your sin, free from blame shifting, free from the fatigue of constantly defending yourselves, or free from the constant pressure of trying to make sure people see you rightly and understand you correctly. I mean, that's one of my biggest issues. I want you to understand me. I want to feel understood. And if I really believe that Jesus is my advocate, I am free from that impulsion, uh, compulsion to feel like I have to get you to get me. Are you tracking with me? It is so liberating for letting Jesus to be your advocate before the Father and against the evil one. But how can Jesus be such an advocate for us? This is not someone, something that you can just do because you want to. Remember that I said that he himself paid the price so that he can be our advocate. How did he do that? Let's look at verse 1 again. The, the last part, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Remember, Christ is not his last name. It's, it's a divine title of his messiahship, that he's savior, but also says that he's righteous. He's not just a savior, he's a righteous savior. Why is this important? Well, because Jesus was what we ought to have been. He stands before the Father on behalf of those who have not acted righteously. If Jesus was with sin and guilty himself, then he would not be an acceptable sacrifice. Just track with me for a second. This is why Jesus needed to be sinless. All right, imagine the Father is standing there, and we are condemned, and Jesus stands up and says, Objection! I will stand in Sam's place. And then the father says, but you have sinned too. You're in trouble too. Do you see how that wouldn't work? See, if he had sin, he couldn't stand in our place as a sinless sacrifice. 
he would himself need to be punished for his own sin. But Christ is without sin. And because he's a sinless substitute, he's acceptable and he is righteous as a memorial before the Father. But he's not just a sinless, perfect champion. He speaks as an advocate who deeply understands us and knows where we've been. He knows the human condition. He knows our struggles and our anxieties and our temptations and yet triumphs. Hebrews 4 verse 15. Did you read this out loud? For we do not You got to stop me. I'm going to preach another sermon just on this. We have one who has gone before us, and he can sympathize with us deeply. Yet he did not give in like all of us have. This is what you need from an advocate and savior. This is why if you struggle with any addiction, do not get advice from other addicts who are still addicted. You want someone who was addicted and yet, by God's grace, are triumphing. You want someone who can crawl up in that hole, that dark hole that you and I are in, and say, hey, I found a way out. Let's go. And that's what we have in Christ. He's, he is an advocate who knows us deeply and can sympathize with us. But there is even more. It doesn't say that Jesus is merciful, though he clearly is, or Jesus is persuasive. Jesus is the righteous one. Remember 1 John 1, 9. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Remember, he's faithful and just to forgive. Jesus does not appeal to God's mercy to try to persuade God from not smiting us, but rather he points to his righteous sacrifice and points to the fact that justice has already been satisfied. And the Father is happy to administer justice. He's happy to give forgiveness. It's his idea. But let's go even further. I know this is intense, but we're going to ratchet up one more, one more. Stay, stay with me if you can. How did Jesus grant us such security and justice before God? Let's look at verse 2. We're going to focus on the first half. Jesus is, our, is the propitiation for our sins. Let's stop there real quick. Would you say this word propitiation with me? Propitiation. What does this word mean? Some of your translations says the word atoning sacrifice, which is good. Gets at it, but, but, but not as well as I think it can be. I think that word propitiation should be kept in your translations because there's a lot here. Because your understanding of propitiation drastically affects the way you view God, your own sin, and what, how we relate with God. To understand the word propitiation, you need to understand the word propitious. I know that's not the word that every kid uses these days, but let me try to explain it to you, okay? Let me give you a quick definition first. Propitious. Favorably, favorably disposed towards someone. You're like, Sam, that still doesn't help. What are, you, what, are, what are you doing here, okay? Well, being propitious usually comes in the context when someone blew it and now you are favorable towards them. Let me give you an example that many of you here may resonate with. When I was younger, I destroyed one of my mom's vases, 
Anybody else broke a vase before? Yes. That's it? Really? Wow. Okay. Well, I, I broke many things in my home growing up. And when my mom came home, she was rightfully furious. She was wrathful towards me. And what did I do? Because I wanted her to be propitious towards me. I cleaned the whole house. I did whatever I could. At dinner time, I'm like, oh, mom, this is so good. Where did you get the recipe? And she's like, stop, I know what you're doing, but keep it coming, right? <laughs> and eventually, as I do enough good deeds and do enough things, my mom's heart of wrath is satiated, and it calms down, and she's like, all right, we're good, stop, stop that fake, fake stuff, but keep doing it, you know? You guys know what I'm saying? You guys been there? Parents are wrathful, and then the kids, we do something to try to make it okay. And that's an amusing illustration that many of us know well, but let's elevate it to actually what happened with Jesus. See, the Bible teaches over and over throughout the Bible that God is perfectly holy and he's light and in him is no darkness, not at all. And so darkness cannot dwell with him. He must hate our sin. He must hate that which perpetuates darkness in his loving creation. But God's wrath is not like our parents' wrath that can be all over the place, that is often personal and about them and their own issues. It's not bad-tempered. It's not lashing out or abusive or uncontrollable like a toddler in the terrible twos. His wrath is right. It's measured. It's just. Indeed, he is not even good if he's not wrathful in those moments. Just like it's right for you to hear a report of a man abusing his wife and you feeling a sense of indignation towards that. If you feel anger when you hear about abuse in a marriage, your anger is functioning correctly. You ought to feel angry. That is righteous anger. And that just gives us a little glimpse of what God feels all the time towards our sin. So we deserve to die as a penalty of our sin. I deserve to die. We deserve to bear God's righteous wrath for our sin. The prophet Isaiah, speaking about those who are not in Christ, says that God is angry all day long. This is not a pleasing kind of picture of God, right? Angry God. See, what we see, if we actually read the Bible, is that our greatest problem is not our sin or our circumstances or the climate or you name the different things that are proposed as our greatest problem of our age. Your greatest problem is God. What do I mean by that? The greatest problem facing all humanity is the just wrath of God. So either we satisfy his just wrath by dying ourselves and taking the punishment due for us, or something or someone will satisfy it for us to make God propitious or favorable towards you and me. And here's the good news. God provides what he requires. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. I know this is a lot. Please stick with me. This, this will change your life if you don't get this yet. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, sinless, to be sin, so that in him, Christ, might become, that we might become the righteousness of God. Man, those hyphens did not help. Those not, the parentheses didn't help. 
What is this text saying here? This is one of the most precious texts in the Bible. Jesus is treated like he was a sinner, like us. He was counted and considered as if he's done everything wrong that you and I have ever done, ever not done, ever thought. He was treated as if he was the greatest sinner who ever lived. And Jesus volunteers to stand in our place. The wrath that should have been poured out on sinners was poured out on Jesus. The judgment that you, that should have been experienced by us sinners was experienced by Jesus. The hell that should have been experienced by you and me was experienced by Jesus. And what is the glorious results of all this? Now God can be propitious towards us, favorable towards you and me, because his wrath has been satisfied. It's been appeased. Our debt has been fully paid. And you do not have to beat up yourself anymore because of your sin, because Jesus was already beat up for you. You don't have to put yourself in a penalty box and wait it out until you feel bad enough, long enough to where you feel like, I think it's okay now. I think I'm out. Because Jesus was already penalized for you. You don't have to work for forgiveness because it's already been granted. So for the Christian, hear me, the Christian, there is no more wrath for you anymore. Wrath is a thing of the past for Christians. Yes, God can and is displeased and grieved by our sin, as a good father ought to be. A passive, spineless, unloving father would not care when we sin, right? And God is not like that. He is displeased. He is brokenhearted. But it's not like it was before the cross. He doesn't have punitive wrath against you anymore because of the cross. God's heart is favorable and warm towards his people because of what Jesus has done. Some people, though, may hear this and say, how archaic, Sam. That sounds like paganism. Sounds like some tribal deity. You know, like the tree gods need to please, you want the tree gods to be pleased with you, so you do a sacrifice to the tree gods. Or you want rain, so you do some sort of sacrifice to the rain gods to make them happy with you. Or you want a child, and so you sacrifice something in your life so that the, the fertility gods can be happy with you. Doesn't it sound like that? How is this, how, how is Christianity uniquely different from any other religion out there or any tribal deity out there? Well, remember, I said this a few times. Context is everything in the Bible, especially in 1 John. And if you were to keep reading, you would see something unique. 1 John 4.10. Would you read this out loud? In fact, not just read it out loud. Would you declare it out loud? In this is love. There's that big P word again. We see the motivation here. Why did God do such a thing? Love. Not reactive love, because we loved him so much, he's like, all right, I'll love you in return. But proactive love. Romans 5, 8, many of you know this by heart. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus willingly came. Remember, God's will, the Father and the Son, they have the same heart. They're not, they're not at odds with each other. The Father didn't force the Son like some divine child abuse, as some progressive would accuse but the son joyfully desired to save us. Look at Hebrews 12. Just write that down if you're taking notes. Why did the son come? For the joy set before him. Who, what was the joy? Well, certainly to please his father, but in context, to claim a bride for himself, you and me. 
He did it with joy. He did it willingly, even though at great cost to himself. So that which God requires, he provides. This is how Christianity is uniquely different. God is the one angry with us, and he is the one who loves us enough to send his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Both judgment and love kiss at the cross. A gospel without love or a gospel without judgment is no gospel at all. And they're brought together beautifully here. Now let's finish our passage in verse 2 at the very end. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Not for ours only. What is John saying here? Does this mean, is John saying that Christ, what he did on the cross, means that everyone in the world is now saved? As Rob Bell would argue. They just have to receive it. And they will one day in some sort of purgatory. No. This is why we must read the whole book in context. Again, if you were to keep reading, we'll get to this at the very end of our series. Look at 1 John 5. Whoever has the Son has life. And there's another category. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So clearly there's a distinction John has of those who have life and those who do not have eternal life. So what does it mean that it's the whole world? I believe what John is saying here is that Jesus' sacrifice is the only option, the only salvation, the only hope for all peoples in the world. Not just the Jews, but all peoples. The hope of all nations. For Somalis, for Koreans, for Hmong, for natives, for Scandinavians, for everyone. He is the only hope. There is no other hope. He's the only sacrifice that is worthy and acceptable. And his sacrifice only becomes effective for you and for you if you believe in him. That's why our mission is to follow Jesus in everyday life and help all kinds of people do the same. Listen, church, many, I, I don't know what that means at the very end. Many of our friends, some of our family members, our coworkers, our neighbors, they are without this hope, church. They do not have an advocate. They do not have a sacrifice for them. They only have an accuser. And we have this great hope that we could share with them. Indeed, our friends, these people in our life, we do not speak. Then it's a terrifying fate for them. Look at John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever did not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what did I say earlier? For the Christian, we have no wrath anymore. But for those who are rejecting Christ and not believing and trusting in him as Lord, Savior, and treasure, the wrath of God remains on them. So church, we have a mission to share. Will we let them die in their sins without knowing that there's an advocate available for them? There's a sacrifice available for them. Would you share this good news and stop caring so much about what they think of you more than you care about their eternal life? 
Shame on me and shame on us when we prioritize our comforts and our fear of making the relationship odd that we would silence our mouth when we have people who are still under the wrath of God. I'm not trying to shame you, but I'm trying to call you into the reality. Don't you see the reality that's flooded into our cities and all around us? The wrath of God is still upon them, and we must speak, we must love, we must share this good news. So let let me close it, and let me invite the band to come up. So what goes on, church, in the courts of heaven when we sin? Satan accuses us. Satan does what Satan does, accusing us night and day. And Jesus, our advocate, does what Jesus does. He stands up and silences the enemy's accusations towards you. And that is objectively true whether you feel it or not. And so I am calling you, church, if you don't feel that to be true, take this passage and put it before you and say, God, help me believe that the enemy's voice is silenced and that your voice is pleasing and there's no condemnation in Christ, that God is favorable towards you, propitious towards you because of what he did. Jesus is greater than your condemnation and your sin. And if you do not know Christ like that, the wrath of God still remains, and I would love to pray with you so that you may believe and trust, and you may have an advocate for you, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a nuts sermon. There's just so much to say, and, I, and I, I'm certain that at, at times I, I may have said things not strong enough or not soft enough or my manner and hopefully not my content, but if, if I am wrong in any of those, please correct me, please convict me, please change me. But that which is true, that, is, that which is from this word, from this infallible book, let it deeply transform us. And I just pray that every single one in here that still sees you as this tyrannical, angry dad, that that would be absolutely revolutionized, and they would see you as a loving father, that Jesus, you are a powerful, loving advocate for us. Help us go before you with our sin, knowing that you are for us already. And if anyone is still under the wrath of God, let that terror fill their hearts with fear so that they may run to you for mercy, and then we know that you are happy to give it. Give us grace and boldness to share this good news that there is an advocate and that Jesus Christ, you are the propitiation not only for our sin, but for the whole world. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.